Good morning. Good to hear your voices sing. Why don't you uh, actually pray with me again before we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to worship you together, to partake of uh, your, the Lord's Supper together, and to hear from your word. So we pray that you would speak to us now, open our eyes to see you more than anything else in our world, and move us to worship more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are so caught up with what is happening right here and right now. We spend our days thinking of what to eat for dinner or when to catch the next bus. We get caught up in the daily news cycles, consumed by social media and the political world around us. Our minds get completely occupied by what we're studying in school, or we're concerned by our kids' classroom sizes and protection from COVID, or we're captivated by sports scores and the latest binge-worthy shows. We are so caught up with what's happening in our immediate proximity that we totally lose sight of what is constantly true above and around us all the time. Like if we were only more aware of the full picture of reality, both seen and unseen, I believe it would change our lives. Hence the need for a revelation, a revealing, a pulling back of the curtain on reality, which is what the Bible, God's word, gives us really all the time. Perhaps nowhere is this more powerfully done than in the book at the end called Revelation. And at the heart of this book of Revelation, we get a peek, a little peek into the throne room of heaven, which you may imagine to be a mystical, ethereal, even irrelevant part of reality. But it is really the most important most foundational, most relevant part of reality, as everything in existence exists because of it, and it is where all of history is headed. As Robert Mount says, a true insight into history is gained only when we view all things from the vantage point of the heavenly throne. So, let's attempt to do that together today. If you would, take a Bible and please turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. Or if you don't have a Bible, I'm sure you can find one on your phone or in an app. Revelation 4. Get ready for a revelation of God himself through his word today. We spent basically all summer sporadically looking at the seven letters of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3 where the Apostle John relays messages from the risen, exalted Christ to his churches. And these letters were already written in a very majestic context, in the presence of the glorious Christ, just relaying these messages to John. But in chapter 4, the scene takes a dramatic shift, changing locations and turning John's gaze and all of our gazes upward. 
Shortly after, Jesus was introduced in one of the letters as the one who opens doors that no one will shut. John says this in verse 1 of chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, that's the voice of Jesus, by the way, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So John is invited to enter into the scene set before him, to, to walk through the door. He says, Come up here. I'll show you what must soon what must take place after this. Now, the Bible doesn't specify when after this is. Was it after John's messages were delivered? After his lifetime on earth? After today? We aren't told. So I would recommend that, that we don't speculate too much. However, I will mention that, that many of the time markers in Revelation, like after this, may not necessarily refer to chronological history, but to chronological revelation. In other words, it's not as much like saying that World War II came after World War I as it is saying that chapter 4 was revealed to John after chapters 1 to 3. And we don't know the timing of when this takes place in history. Either way, though, we believe that what is seen in chapter 4 is really true both now and in the future. We're all, we will all witness this at the end of time, but it's also absolutely true right now, today. So, John accepts the invitation that he's given to come up here, and then he quickly sees another thing to behold. It says, at once, in verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Behold, like, look, John wants us, his hearers, to come along with him and see what he saw. And the first thing that in all of heaven that caught and transfixed his attention was a throne. Now, this throne is obviously a major focus, or the major focus, in chapter 4. It's mentioned 13 times in only 11 verses. On the throne, around the throne, from the throne, before the throne. But, lest you think, well, they do it's a fancy chair. The throne is not the point. The point is who is occupying the throne. Look again. It says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And then this person is on a throne implies majesty and authority, a royal rule and reign. He's a king. Now, John doesn't say who it is that's seated on the throne yet, but we know it's God's throne. And then over the next few verses, John attempts to describe the dazzling scene before him. It's all meant to wow us. It's meant to convey transcendence and power and glory and awesomeness. As another pastor puts it, here, God is large and in charge. To borrow a phrase from Boromir, clearly, 
One does not simply walk into the throne room of God. John has been brought into a blaze of otherworldly power. And in this blaze of majesty, it's impossible to come to any conclusion other than this, that our reigning Lord God is glorious. It's glorious. Our, our God reigns. He's on his throne. And our reigning Lord God is breathtakingly glorious. Before we see how God appears to John, just pause and soak in the truth that our God reigns. In contrast to the throne of Caesar, or to the throne of Satan, or to any modern ruler's throne, there's a higher throne than theirs, a supernatural, heavenly, supreme throne. And as Gerald Johnson says, good news, the throne of the universe is occupied. It is not up for grabs. It often feels that there is no one in control, or worse, that there has been a coup, and that the powers of chaos, evil, and death have stormed headquarters and taken over. Look, look, look. A throne, and someone is sitting on it. Someone is on the throne, pulsating with brilliance, light, life, and glory, infinite calm, and absolute power. Now, is that ever good news for this crazy, sad, and scary year of 2020? And God is still on his throne. Is this something that we should remind ourselves of it. Fix our eyes on every single day. Our God reigns. In verse 3, when John tries to describe God, he doesn't give any shape or physical likeness at all. He resorts to using colors. The colors of precious jewels. Look at verse 3. It says, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Jasper, carnelian, and emerald were three translucent gemstones. Jasper may have actually been an opal or a diamond. Carnelian was this fiery red gem. And the emerald could have been a bright green or a transparent crystal like a prism. The effect was, in fact, to yield a rainbow of color encircling the throne. And once, uh, or sorry, in verse 3, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, this possibly alludes back to the rainbow of Noah's day, symbolizing God's faithfulness. People have suggested that each stone symbolizes something unique as well, which may be true. But it's likely best to take them all together for a, for a glimpse of resplendent beauty and glory. John can't even describe the person himself, just his radiance. And in 1 John 1.5, which Pastor Kenny preached on last week, it says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 
In 1 Timothy 6, 16, it says, God dwells in unapproachable light. Here's a, a first-hand account of seeing that light. Actually, we see very similar descriptions of God's glory elsewhere in Scripture. Paul Carter explains that Revelation is like an art gallery filled with paintings that have been painted in colors borrowed especially from Old Testament canvases. Take Ezekiel 1, for instance. When the prophet Ezekiel has a vision of God. I don't know if you know, but it's quite a spectacular vision he has. And there are actually a number of different features from the imagery there in Ezekiel that John uses here. Just listen to Ezekiel's description. This is some of it. He says, There was it the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with human appearance. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow or the rainbow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. And then he says, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. A revelation actually reverses that order. John already fell on his face back in chapter 1, and the Lord spoke already, and now he, he sees the glory. But I think you can hear the similarities, right? Both are trying to describe the indescribable, the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. In verse 4, John notices that while God alone is the center of attention, he is not alone in heaven. Look at it. It says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And there are all kinds of theories as to who these 24 elders are. Are they a special order of angels? Are they the 12 patriarchs and 12 apostles combined? Are they Old Testament saints? Are they heavenly court of judgment? Or maybe they represent the whole of the people of God before God's throne. Ultimately, we don't know for sure. We do know certain things about them, though. They're clearly very important beings or groups of people. They sit on thrones in God's very presence. They are possibly the, the greatest non-divine rulers in the universe. They're clothed in white, likely representing their purity and their holiness. They've got golden crowns. They obviously have some kind of significant authority. We also know a few things about their role in heaven. It's a fairly priestly role. In Revelation, their main activities are to lead the way in worship and prayer, and they also act as intermediaries or go-betweens, interpreters, helping us understand things that are going on. So this is around the throne. Then in verse 5, the scene gets electrifying. It says, From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings and peals of thunder. Can you even imagine that? 
The message paraphrases, lightning flash and thunder crash pulsed from the throne. Supernatural power was visible and audible, blinding and deafening. And it all came from the throne. And such was the power of God's presence. Think of when God came down on Mount Sinai. He came and lightning and thunder just crashed everywhere. But here, even while he's sitting calmly in heaven, God's power crackles and roars. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, this is the only place in this passage John helps us interpret the symbolism behind it. He says that the blazing torches before the throne are the seven spirits of God. And most believe that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The sevenfold, perfect, complete Spirit of God hovering before the throne. And it makes sense that the Spirit would be signified by fire. Like, think of Pentecost, or the way that the Spirit acts as light, illuminating truth for us, or the way the Spirit blazes, purifying us and burning away the impurities, convicting us of our sins. But look at this, like the same Holy Spirit who indwells our lowly bodies is forever ablaze before God's throne in heaven. This is, that's the spirit that God has sent to dwell in us. As Danny Aiken says, he is perfect in his person, perfect in his position, perfect in his purity, and perfect in his power. Finally, this paragraph ends in verse 6 with, And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. The imagery of a glass sea does three things, I believe. One, being like crystal, it would reflect and refract the magnificent colors and light just everywhere, enhancing the beauty of the scene to be even more spectacular. Two, like a similar expanse that is actually seen in Ezekiel 1, again, it separates God from his creation. And three, the sea in biblical imagery, almost always symbolized chaos. Sea was seen as a, a wild and untamable force, a thing to be feared. But here, before the throne of God, the sea is tamed, as still as glass. I think we see, like, therefore, chaos will not win. Life may seem chaotic at times. But God will subdue all evil one day. And even now, he is sovereign over it. Now, this is a good opportunity to talk about something that we need to understand about Revelation. Because there is a ton of symbolism and imagery used in these passages. Don't get me wrong. John is describing very real things. The truest reality there is. 
But as is the case in apocalyptic writings, he's using all kinds of pictures to do so. So we think, why? Why be so symbolic or figurative? Why not just say it as it is? The truth is, we may not be able to handle it as it is. And John may not be able to describe it better than he does. And he doesn't have the, the categories for something like this. D.A. Carson once illustrated this really well. He said that he had a, a sister who was once a, a missionary deep in the jungles of Papua New Guinea where she ministered to a technologically primitive, extremely isolated tribe. Like, they had no contact at, with the outside world at all. Now, imagine if, if you were to travel there and to work with them for years, to learn their language, and you have one mission. Your mission is to explain electricity to them. Okay? But here's the catch. You aren't allowed to bring anything in from the outside to, to show them or to demonstrate it to them. You just have to explain it to them. How would you do it? How would you help them understand electricity? Maybe you'd say something like, oh, electricity is like a powerful spirit that runs along hard things like vines Except these vines don't grow. We make these vines called wires in, this, in, the, uh, in our factories or these big mud huts. And then we string the vines from tree to tree. Actually, we take the trees and we turn them into poles and we string them pole to pole, but maybe that's too complicated. Anyway, we string these vines from tree to tree, and we get to your village, and then we get to your hut, and the vine comes in through your thatched roof inside your hut and into this little ball that we also make in our big mud huts that hangs from your ceiling, and it goes inside that ball, and it makes it glow like a miniature sun inside your home. Now you can stay up past dark if you want. you got light for it. It also goes into these big box square things with round things on top, and they make heat. So you can actually heat your food and cook your food without needing smoke anymore. Now, how would something like that do for starting to explain electricity? You haven't explained all kinds of important things about electricity. The science behind it, the measurements of it in volts or wattage or amps, the, the generation of it from power plants, the conductors or non-conductors or semiconductors of it, the dangers of electrocution or electrical fires, the way it's, it's paved the way for the whole communication and, and digital worlds, or all the other uses for it, from vacuums to TVs to razors to computers to, to heaters to pencil sharpeners to Alexa. <laughs> so, would not knowing any of that make these tribes people stupid? Of course not. Right? It's not intelligence that they lack. They just lack experience. Like we grow up immersed in electricity. They don't. 
And therefore, you'd be trying to explain electricity to a society that, that has no word, no vocabulary, no shared experience of it or anything to do with it. And so Carson then says, the question becomes, how should we talk about the throne room of God? Because we're a human society that has no vocabulary and no words and no shared experience of it. Our knowledge of God and of heavenly things is so extremely poor and thin. Like, electricity is way closer to the culture of a primitive tribe than we are to the culture of heaven. Like, so how can we describe it? How can we understand it? The best we can do is to, to talk in metaphor, and similes, and images, and parallels, and it's no coincidence that God often reveals himself in exactly those ways to us. It allows us to comprehend just some of his glory. In the next paragraph, John continues to describe what he saw, and it gets stranger and stranger to us as he describes other heavenly beings. And yet, the ultimate point of describing the scene at all, I think, will still be crystal clear. And that's that our reigning Lord God is holy, holy, holy. Our reigning Lord God is, as they say, holy, holy, holy. Let's first take a glance at who the they are that say this. Okay? Beginning in the next chapter, halfway through verse 6. Or sorry, not next chapter, next paragraph says this, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, who or what are these four living creatures? Again, we don't know for sure. Some say they represent certain people groups or all of animate creation. Others say they're angelic beings, heavenly beings of some kind. There are four living creatures described very much like these, actually back in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10. And there they're called cherubim, which was likely an order of angels or heavenly beings. But with their six wings here and their cries of holy, 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 they also resemble the seraphim from Isaiah's vision of God's glory in Isaiah 6. Now, don't get too weirded out by John's somewhat bizarre description of them with eyes and wings all over. Again, he doesn't have categories for something like this. Neither would we. And there's a lot of symbolism here. It's likely the, the wings show how swift they are. Their eyes show how alert or how all-seeing they are. 
And in Revelation, they, they always, the cherubim and seraphim here, they always seem to be leading the way, both in worshiping God and helping carry out God's judgment on earth. That's, that's our best knowledge of who these are. But far more powerful in their appearance or their roles was these creatures' message, which it says they never cease to proclaim. Day and night, they never cease to say. They never take a break. Like, this is ongoing right now. The, the greatest, most powerful beings in existence are continually declaring how much greater their God is. As Johnson says, when we go to worship, we are entering a service already in progress. Worship does not begin with us, and it will not end with us. Excuse me. Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That contains three of the most fundamental descriptions of God out there. Holy, almighty, and eternal. Go through each one of these, one by one. But coming first on the list, in order and in intensity, is His holiness. So what does it mean that God is holy? When we hear the word holy, we tend to think of being pure or undefiled by evil. And that is definitely an aspect of holiness. But it's also more than that. R.C. Sproul explains that the primary meaning of holy is separate. It comes from an ancient word that means to cut or to separate. I think of people saying something is a cut above something else today. Like when we eat a meal or purchase a product that is just superior to other ones. But God's holiness is more than just being separate. He's also, or superior, he's also what we call transcendent. He exceeds the limits of comparison. He's above and beyond all else. Sproul continues this way. It says, transcendence describes his supreme and absolute greatness. He is higher than the world. He has absolute power over the world. The world has no power over him. Transcendence describes God and his consuming majesty, his exalted loftiness. It points to the infinite distance that separates him from every creature. He is an infinite cut above everything else. When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate. He is so far above and beyond us that he seems almost totally foreign to us. But notice here, God isn't just holy. He is holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. For, for God to be holy, like, you know that to say something uh, twice adds emphasis to it. And we see that in Scripture, like where Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. To say it thrice, though, three times, just emphasizing it to a superlative degree. 
You know that even though God is love, we know God is love. The scripture tells us God is love, but the Bible never calls God love, love, love. We know God is good. And never, the Bible never calls him good, good, good. Not even a good, good father. But here in, in Isaiah 6, it says God is holy, holy, holy. He's the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. For, for God to be holy is for God to be God. Almost synonymous with him. In view of his holiness, our best response is awe. Fear the Lord. When seated on the throne, it's holy, holy, holy. We also see from this verse that our reigning Lord God is almighty. Our reigning Lord God is the Lord God Almighty. It says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God isn't just strong. He isn't just mighty. He is almighty, which means he is the strongest, the mightiest. He is all-powerful. Hey, do you ever get tired these days? Some of you are, who are young parents or working night shifts or students may go, I am tired all the time. I hear you, right? Like sometimes it takes all we have to just fall into bed. You know who's never gets tired? You know who always has strength to spare? You know who has power over any challenge we ever face in life? The one who is seated on the throne. The sovereign Lord God Almighty. Like whatever trial we are experiencing today, and I know there are many of them that we go through, don't take your eyes off your Lord God Almighty because that's when we get anxious and start freaking out when we lose sight of Him. William Hendrickson says, Our affairs rest in the hands not of men but of God. Hence, when the world is enkindling the flames of hatred and slaughter, and when the earth is drenched with blood, sounds like today, may our tear-dimmed eye catch a vision of the throne which rules the universe. In the midst of trial and tribulation, may our gaze be riveted upon the one who is king of kings. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Lord God is holy, holy, holy. He is almighty and also our reigning Lord God is eternal. The only one who always was, who is, and who evermore will be. He is eternal. Who was and is and is to come. 
God is eternal, and he is king over all eternity. That's it. That's a tweet. That means that, that before this world began, before all its troubles came to be, our Lord God Almighty was sitting on his throne. That means that right now, at this very moment, even when the world seems so broken, God's reign stands unbroken. He is king today. That means that no matter how bad things get in the future, no matter what life has in store for you, no matter how much it looks like evil is going to win, God will still be sitting on his throne. The heavenly beings will still be singing to him. The, the world will still be under his control, headed towards his ends. And you can trust him. Today, tomorrow, forever. Isn't it great to just soak for a morning in who our God is? telling you, we lose sight of this way too easily. And when you hear God's word describe our God and King this way, as glorious, holy, almighty, eternal, and what response does it prompt in you? I hope it makes you want to join in with the heavenly worship service. Because that is the least that God deserves from all of us. And we see this in the final verses of chapter 4. Follow along with me in verse 9. It says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne. He reigns and worship him who lives forever and ever. He's eternal. And so heaven worships. 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Here's what we need to hear and finally take away today, that our reigning Lord God is worthy. Our reigning Lord God is worthy. Worthy of what, you ask? Well, the living creatures first give glory and honor and thanks. Glory, they, they glorify God, magnify his greatness. Honor, they, they respect and esteem God for who he is as king and holy and above them. And thanks, they, they thank God for everything he's done. And then the, the elders fall down and Worship him, it says. He's worthy of worship in all its forms. When we studied worship together earlier this year, we defined worship as coming into God's presence and responding to him in order to glorify him. 
So anytime this happens, anytime we come into his presence, we respond to who he is, like he is worthy of that. He's worthy to receive that from us. And then when the elders start singing their song, they say a lot of the same stuff, but they actually replace the word thanks with power. Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, and to receive glory and honor and power, all their power. I think these are very powerful beings. They undoubtedly have great power, but all of that was due to be given back to God. And this symbol was symbolized by the casting of their own crowns before his throne. In the ancient world, it was common for lesser kings to place their crowns at the feet of more powerful rulers, like the emperor, to, to show their submission to him. And here, the courts of heaven declare and demonstrate that God is king above all kings. And that all power rightfully belongs to him. And I wonder, like, we all have differing levels of, of power and influence and strength today. It's obviously minuscule compared to this, but we have something. And like, it is our strength, is our power, anything that we have in life, offered back to the Lord? He deserves it all. Like, we should join in the chorus. Take our glory, take our honor, take our thanks, take our power. And we wonder, why does God deserve all this? Look no further than what we read. For just one of the countless reasons that God is worthy of worship. Verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Notice, for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Essentially, he is the creator and sustainer of all things. All things, from every germ to every galaxy and everything in between, including every single human being. Not only are we created by God, but we were willed into existence by him. Like you exist because God wanted you to exist. You were created in the image of God, wonderfully formed by him. You are alive today still because by his will you're still alive. He, he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. And that's why you owe him your thanks. I owe him my worship. Why we owe him our lives. Not that he needs us or that we could actually repay him, but he desires that we freely give him what he is worthy of. Everything owes its being to the one seated on the throne. Whether or not you realize it or acknowledge it, God deserves your life. He deserves your respect, your ambitions, your devotion, your gratitude. If he just created, 
and sustained us and did nothing else. He deserved eternal worship. And that's enough for this passage. But as Christians, we know so much more of why he's worthy, don't we? Most notably, the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What we call the gospel. What's interesting here in, in Revelation 4 is that besides Jesus inviting John through the door, Jesus is noticeably absent for the rest of the chapter. This is clearly meant to be a, a picture painted of God the Father in particular. Like the Son and the Spirit, they're present there, but God in three persons, but the focus on this, in this chapter is on God the Father. If you wonder where Jesus is, don't worry. Just wait till we look at chapter 5 next week. But for today, like if, as you consider why God is worthy to receive your glory and honor and power, consider how the Father sent his beloved Son out of this incredible glory to die because he so loved the world. In his holiness, he could have just crushed us, crushed the world. Instead, he sent Jesus to save it. And now you and I get another chance to, to give our hearts to him and our, our lives and live our lives for him. To, truly, he is worthy of that in the least if your very existence doesn't get your blood pumping here, then maybe your restoration and reconciliation to God the Father will. Like he is our Father. This God is now our Father in heaven. We are God's children now, all because of Jesus. And if you're not, you can be today. And the door stands open for you to walk through. And the glory and the beauty and majesty of this scene, this will be your destiny. Now, you may not find this vision of God exactly comfortable today because maybe you've gone and, and compromised with the world or you've grown lax in your faith this is quite the wake-up call. But whether you find this revelation assuring or disturbing, it's meant to attract you to God. It's meant to, to move your heart into to greater love for the Lord and greater worship of Him. So don't allow any lesser glory or inferior loves keep you from doing so today. This is a beautiful God, glorious God, also a holy God, not a God you want to play games with, and yet one who beckons us near. 
you're still wondering, well, how do we worship him? How can we give him this worship? I'll say it starts in our hearts with a love for the Lord. And then it comes out of us. What we say, what we think, what we pray, what we sing. So, do you talk about the Lord? It's, it's who he is, what he's done in your everyday life. You, you jump at every opportunity you get to praise him. Does thanksgiving flow from you in your prayers, in your conversations? You make worship a priority, even in hard times like a pandemic. Is he worthy of your worship even now, even today? Well, he's still seated on the throne. So the answer is yes. To end with an exhortation from Charles Spurgeon, says, Beloved friends, we may well continue to praise God, for our God continues to give us causes for praise. Pray with me. Father in heaven, worthy are you. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and thanks and power from us. For you created us. You sustain us. You saved us. Would you take these truths and, and shape our hearts, shape our lives with them? Shape what we think, what we do, what we say, what we sing, everything. May it be all for your glory. For again, you are worthy of this and so much more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.